Welcome back to the In-Laws Podcast. I'm Brienne. I'm Sophia. We're two law students who created this podcast to talk about law school, law talk, and everything in between. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at the In-Laws Pod and our law school pages at Law and at Brienne in Law. For this week's episode, we're going to be chatting with our guest, Majorin, and on TikTok, he's at Low underscore, and Instagram at Low, and he's a 2L at Texas Tech Law School. So we'll be talking about his experience in law school so far, and his interest in movement, movement lawyering, and civil rights. So welcome. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. So the first question we typically ask people is, why did you choose law school? Yeah, so it's a long-winded answer, so I apologize in advance. But uh, the 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 sum of it is that it has a lot to do with my family. Uh, I come from several family members, immediate, both my parents, um, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents who have been disadvantaged by the criminal penal system. It's not really a justice system, in, in my opinion, but who had just really been on the, the bad side of it. And I thought, <laughs> before I got to law school, <laughs> I thought that this was the best way to go about you know, invoking those types of changes. And I remember very specifically being like a little bitty kid and seeing uh, before President Obama was elected, seeing Thurgood Marshall as like the the goat when it comes to like effecting change and like the top, quote unquote, like black person in government. And so he was um, obviously like a big pillar in my life. And I was like, I want to be a lawyer. So I remember very specifically um, in kindergarten, actually, <laughs> my mom, she tells the story all the time, but I, I begged her to wear a suit and I used to carry around this little um, like backpack, but it was a suitcase. I used to keep my books in a little suitcase. And I used to tell everybody I'm going to be a lawyer one day. So I'm pictured it. It's an actual picture of me in kindergarten in a full suit with a, like a three-piece suit and a tie. And I was like, it says I'm going to be a lawyer on it and everything like that. So I wanted to be a lawyer for a long time. And I wanted to do, I guess, civil rights work and like this type of like type of work I want to do specifically for such a long time. Um, I can't really even imagine myself doing anything else now. And so to be here and be in this space and be so close to the finish line, is kind of crazy. But yeah, um, the short answer is just basically my family and just seeing how how people have been like disadvantaged by the criminal justice system firsthand just kind of like pushed me and propelled me into that work. <laughs> yeah. What did you end up majoring in in undergrad? basic law school <laughs> want to be I was a poli sci major in undergrad so poli sci major Spanish minor everyone's a poli sci major <laughs> <laughs> literally 85% of law students <laughs> I could have never done it I would have been so miserable as a poli sci major you know I don't know I I I can honestly say I really enjoyed like once I got to the past the basics I, t- I was a dual credit student in high school so I took dual credit AP classes and so I really only had like one year basic I graduated undergrad in three years but when I got to like the poli sci classes I really really liked it because it was just it was all like we just was it was like sitting in a Socratic class every day just talking about our thoughts for 45 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes every day like we really we really didn't do nothing I'm gonna be honest and so it was great for me we just talked about, I remember I took this one class uh, called urban politics and it was just a great chance to really like go back and forth with our professor and like other classmates about the way in which you know city governments are ran and and how which quote-unquote party has messed up cities and stuff like that. So it was just a bunch of talking, to be honest. And I, I liked it. It's, it was it was cool. <laughs> when I was an undergrad, I took like a few poli sci and public policy 
classes. And Mm -hmm. I would not say like the makeup of the students in those majors at the University of Delaware was like the best people to have those conversations with. Um, It was interesting. I would say that like my criminal justice classes had much more intelligent conversation. (laughs) (laughs) It was, I think, a flaw of the major specifically at UD. So you kind of touched on like the other two questions that we had for this section to like introduce like why you wanted to do this work and then what you see yourself doing. So how would you describe like the work that you want to do after graduation and maybe also talk about the work that you've done so far in school, like what you did last summer? Yeah, so I'll, I'll also share that. So before I came to law school, I got I got a full ride to go to law school from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, so they paid my way. I'm a Marshall Miley Scholar. I'm part of the inaugural class, which is supposed to be like, the, well, it, it's not supposed to be. It is this scholarship program that's dedicated to seeding the Southern United States with civil rights lawyers over the next uh, five years. So they select 10 people every year. And in exchange for them paying our way to go to law school, um, we commit to practicing civil rights work in the Southern United States for 13 years. So there's the uh, law school commitment, there's a two-year fellowship, and then there's an eight-year commitment post-grad. And then we have to, we, we're placed at like internship placements all the law school summers. So last summer I was in New Orleans, Louisiana, working at the um, Promise of Justice. I didn't have the t-shirt on today, but I was working at PJI and we were doing um, a lot of appellate conviction work there. A lot of work with non-unanimous juries, um, you know, in Louisiana, and I think in Oregon, uh, people were convicted of off a nine-three or ten-two or eleven-one jury. You can still go to jail, go to prison. Um, but recently, the Supreme Court just came back and basically said, you know, it's like the last stand. Jim Crow's last stand is what Justice Kavanaugh said. Justice Kavanaugh, of all people, <laughs> said it was Jim Crow, Jim Crow's last stand. And so um, that work was really like enriching and, and like hard enriching I would say it's not like the type of civil works I wanted civil rights work I want to do specifically because it's just like so emotionally draining because you know I spent a lot of time in Angola and I'm like this is just like a lot like seeing black men picking cotton in 2022 is just a bit too much for me and so um it was it was it was a lot um to do that work and just to be involved in it but it's necessary and so outside of that we did a lot of focus groups with louisianans to see how they felt about forced labor um wrote a lot of memos about um plantation style prisons in the south they're they're pretty they're popular across you know the southern united states but they're particularly bad in places like louisiana mississippi and arkansas and so um did a lot of work with that uh, and this upcoming summer i'll be in um in Miami, Florida, at the Community Justice Project, working on some housing discrimination, some um, like some backlog stuff from COVID, some immigration work for like Haitian Americans and Cuban Americans, and um, just those type of things. And so, yeah, I think I got lost in the question there, but the the I guess the backdrop to why I I want to do this work and kind of how I've been involved presently is that I really, like I said earlier, I really can't see myself doing anything else, but it's specifically to the, this, this, this tie to the South, like even in undergrad at Prairie, I went to undergrad at Prairie University, which is HBCU about 45 minutes from Houston in Texas. And even there, it really kind of like, I guess, deepened this interest in civil rights work because like 
I was really strong and, and really fought hard with voting rights advocacy because Prairie View is the reason that college students have the right to vote across America. And so even then, I think it was in the 90s, there was a lawsuit there where one of my professors, Dr. Price, was actually there when they sued to get the right to vote and have the right to run in city council elections in Prairie View. And they won. Supreme Court agreed with them. And so and then after that, it became a thing where students had the right to vote across the college campuses. But ever since then, and even before then, like there have been just so many attacks on our right to vote. Like when I was there in 18, when Beto ran for government for a Senate against Ted Cruz, they moved the vote, the voting box from on campus to off campus. And then they like try to move our early voting days down by from two weeks to four days. It was just been like, it was like so much crazy stuff. And we just got like very heavily involved. We, we protested, we rallied against it. And it was like, I don't see myself on any, anything else. Like this is who I am. This is the core of my 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 being, like to be in the in the midst of organization and rallying people together against change and getting people together for stuff that ain't right. And so after that, it was like, yeah, I have to, I have to go to the next level and get further involved. So Marshall Molly, it, it kind of came out of the blue, but it was like a perfect fit for me as well. And it because like I was gonna do this work anyways, but to be able to get go to law school for free and do the work. That's that's a that's an extra blessing. And so it was it was a perfect fit. And I think that moving forward, even past this, you know, even past law school, it's going to continue to just be a great fit for me because I'll be able to do what I'm passionate about without having to worry about some of the expenses incurred with it. So definitely it's interesting that you brought that scholarship up and are a recipient of that school that scholarship because I remember when I decided to go to law school my cousin had found that scholarship and had like sent it to me and I was like that's a really big commitment like I don't know if I could do that because everybody in my family like knows that I want to live in Georgia like I've always wanted to live in Georgia I don't know what my attachment is to Georgia but I need to live there for at least like one year of my life <laughs> my cousin like said that to me and I was like I don't know if now's the time I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for that 13 is a lot it's it's a it's a big commitment 13 years is a long time and it's it's really like it's really 10 because they include law school in the 13 but it, it, it's the contract says 13 you know what I mean? so yeah. but, um, will you oh well I guess it doesn't matter that was I was going to be like, are you eligible for public interest loan forgiveness? But you're not paying for law school. Um, <laughs> so that that finishes that question, because I was going to say, is that why they do 10 years? Um, do you have like an idea of what type of civil rights practice you want to be involved in? Or are you like figuring that out through these different um, internships and fellowships that they have you doing? You know, so like I said, I think that I know that like the appellate, like prison work may not be for me just mm-hmm. because of my previous experience. I'm currently interning at Texas Appleseed um, this semester there like in their educational justice project. And so that has been insightful to see. I didn't know truancy court was like so complex and so like, it's crazy how like how America treats our children and how these judges are like compelling people to drop out of school instead of like graduating because they're missing days of class. It's it's disheartening, but it's also like maybe a potential route for that. Um, so I, I guess to answer your question, I'm not exactly sure. You know, coming into law school, I thought I was going to be like stone cold. Sure. Like I want to be a voting rights lawyer. Like that's what I want to do. I want to do voting rights advocacy, voting rights policy. And I'm not the door is not closed on that. But I think that, excuse me, civil rights is so much more expensive than I had thought it to be. And um, 
<laughs> like Cheryl and I feel when she was still leading LDF, she said, you know, if you think about any area of law, there's a group of marginalized Black people or marginalized people of color in almost every area of law. And so I think that there's space to do it in, in any capacity. Recently, actually, when I went to DC a couple of weeks ago, I met someone who does, um, I got the sticker from it, the SELC, which is, I think, the Southern Environmental Law Center. Yeah. And so super interested in that work. You know, I, I think environmental, inju environmental um, injustice is a big problem here in Texas specifically. I know there's a lot of stuff like in Dallas and even, even out here in Lubbock where I met where, you know, they just run power plants or sewage plants or all type of crazy things through minoritized communities. So that's something I would like to learn more about in the future and hope to get the opportunity to do more work in. But the short answer is no, I don't know exactly what I want to do um, anymore. <laughs> That's something we talk about a lot on here is just you get to law school and you realize how many jobs there actually are in the legal field. Um, but the Southern Environmental Law Center actually has an office in Chapel Hill. Oh, do they? Yeah. 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 Like not even in Raleigh or Durham, in Chapel Hill. Hmm. Very odd. Suburbs, uh, we go. Yeah, right. And like, I don't know, people have differing opinions about whether North Carolina is the South or not, but. According to the Southern Environmental Law Center, we are. According to Marshall Miley, North Carolina is also the South, but it, they also have Missouri on the map. And I don't, oh, I I don't, I'm from Missouri. I don't necessarily count Missouri as the South, but, you know. Missouri is also one of those like borderline states where like the Midwest doesn't like completely claim it, but like it's sort of the Midwest. But people are like, do we want it as the Midwest? I don't know. They got some other tendencies, so we'll just we'll say that for sure. My question uh, would be, does it include Florida as the South? Absolutely. I don't think Florida is the South. That's like my opinion. It's its, it's its own thing. I also, maybe I would also say that Texas is its own thing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. More so Texas than Florida. Because Texas, I don't know, um, the, the, the Texans are going to get on me about this, but to me... Texas is not the South. Like Texas is literally like, I, I wouldn't even, it's, I guess I can give it the Southwest, but it's really like, it's really like the West to me. And Texas, it's just so big. I guess you, if you split it down the middle, like I'm in Lubbock right now. So I'm like, I'm in West Texas. I literally like 45 minutes to an hour from New Mexico. So this part is extremely West. You know what I mean? Yeah. But dad lives and I went to school at like Houston it's like a maybe an hour and a half from Louisiana. That's more of I can see how you can kind of rope that into the South, but I don't know because I don't want to get into the South debate because <laughs> people are gonna just eat it up, and so I don't want to do that. But you know, I I can go all day about what's the South and not. To me, I, I just say this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into it anyway. It's okay. I'm gonna get into it. So to me, <laughs> the South is Florida, the uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi. Alabama and and Memphis, not Tennessee, just Memphis, because of how close Memphis is to Mississippi, right? Okay. And everything else, the Virginias and stuff. Now we're talking about like the like like that's the South from like the thirteen colonies. Like we're talking about the South presently. No, that's not the South. All the other states, like Louisiana, Texas, people car people say Arkansas is the South. Now that is like side eye for me. Mm. Arkansas is not the South. I'm sorry. How, how is it not? What's your argument that it's not the South? It's the Midwest. Arkansas is the Midwest. I would agree. 
<laughs> Nobody claims Arkansas as the Midwest. <laughs> I've never heard of anybody claim Arkansas as the Midwest. People don't. There's like so much debate about Oklahoma too. Like somebody posted about Oklahoma saying like nobody wants Oklahoma. Like the Midwest doesn't want Oklahoma. The South doesn't want Oklahoma. Texas doesn't want Oklahoma. Everybody <laughs> was in the comments fighting. So I was like, we do not learn that Oklahoma's in the Midwest in elementary school, middle school, nothing. We do not learn that it's included. Oh, Oklahoma was the Midwest. I always, I've always thought Oklahoma was the Midwest. Same. So weird. Yeah, I would consider the South, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Mississippi, Louisiana, and some parts of Tennessee. Yeah. That's fair. Um, going way back to the truancy stuff, um, there's a book called Pushing Out, and it's more about like truancy and like fighting to prison pipeline that's a really good book I don't know if you've read it before but it's very good and it's specifically about girls getting pushed into prison from school because of those reasons you said it's called pushing out yeah I read that book in undergrad it's very good good. yeah yeah that has been like that's my supervising attorney it's like his primary project right now and it's just been like a lot of stuff that I just didn't know about. And I think that's kind of like one of the things too, I guess that's been good about this experience with like with civil rights work and Marshall Miley is that we just, ex- you're exposed to so much. Like uh, Brianne was saying earlier, like you just don't know how expensive the law is until you get into law school. Like you think that some things are just kind of like bucketed, but everything has its own bucket and it has its own like space. And it's just like, it's a lot of bad shit happening. Oh, I'm sorry. Can we curse on here? It's a lot of bad stuff happening across. It's a lot. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's a lot of bad stuff happening across America for sure. So there's space to do the work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so we asked this of our our TikTok friends. What made of what motivated you to make a TikTok and to talk about law school? And like you talk about a lot more things now, but you also make a lot of law school stuff. So what motivated you to do that? Yeah, I think in the beginning, right? So I was making a lot of like memes on TikTok and then it was, it kind of morphed into me talking about my law school experience. I will say, honestly, what what made me make my first law school TikTok was another TikToker. I watched any, um, she made a, a, a TikTok about, um, she had her iPad and she was just like studying or something like that. And I was like, okay, when I get the boss, I can do this. And so I just, I started doing it. And then I realized like I was the only black man I saw doing it, period. Like I didn't see any other black men talking about law school on TikTok. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I should continue doing this. And so it kind of morphed into me like, and then too, I have a lot of thoughts. So I, <laughs> I'm notorious. I'm the friend that calls the group chat ranting about, about things all the time. So I was like, but my friends don't want to hear me ranting about law school all the time. So maybe I can take it to like put this energy somewhere else. And so it kind of became that too. And then too, I think that for me, like I've always been the person, even in undergrad, like I don't want to, I never really want to like open a door and not have anybody else like have access to information that I have that's coming behind me. And I think at my school, I don't know how it is now, but when I was there, it was so hard to get information about law school. Like it was so hard and I just didn't know anything. Like me, actually another friend of mine, Maya, who makes TikToks too. And she's, um, she, her and I graduated together. We were, we ran in the same circle. We had a little, 
friend group at P- <laughs> our little activist group at uh, PV was called PSP Political Science Posse. <laughs> In retrospect, but um, yeah, so we we ran together and we took the LSAT together, like. During COVID and everything, we weren't we were in different cities, but we were just like we literally like we talk every Sunday by voice. We haven't talked on the phone in months, maybe year, maybe over a year, but we send each other like six minute voice memos every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> but her and I just like literally, so many people would reach out to us on Instagram, on t- Twitter when I was still on Twitter, or just on LinkedIn, like from Prairie View, like, hey, can you can we? talk about the LSAT, can we talk about this? And we're not people, we didn't get into like T14 law schools or something like that. We're not like at the quote unquote top of the game, but we're the only people that they see that has made it from Prairie View to law school. And so it's like, if these people are reaching out to me directly to ask me about this advice, how many other people are just watching my social media and have questions as well? You know what I mean? So it's like, I thought, you know, why not just answer some of these questions and talk about some of the things that I just didn't know coming into law school? You know what I mean? I think also my experience is like, it's kind of, I have a very privileged experience in law school because of the scholarship. And so I also, I try to be cognizant of that when I talk about certain things, but I also know that my experience as a black man in law school is a very nuanced one as well. And so it's like, that doesn't, just because I have, I don't have some of the same concerns or some of the same like financial burdens that doesn't take away from the fact that I still experience like culturally and 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 the isolation and all those things that come with law school I'll still experience those things in the same way as other law students will and so I think that kind of like drove me to start it what's kept me doing it is I guess to just that that same thing and, and those same inquiries and questions being asked and also just the desire to keep myself sane—it kind of became like a a, a coping mechanism and like an outlet sometimes, just to be able to vent and to talk about things, and also know that other law students across the country had similar experiences or similar thoughts or similar concerns about the way in which the law interacts with, you know, minoritized groups or uh, um, groups of. Uh, I lost my thought, but people who are just like on the the short end of the stick when it comes to the law, and so that that has been a big piece of it, I guess, and getting me involved with Law Talk. And I've met some, met some great people along the way. You know what I mean? We've become internet friends. And so it's been cool. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I always felt like, because I didn't come from a background where I had a lot of people to talk to. I didn't know attorneys. And I also decided to go to law school like super late. So I felt like I didn't have like anybody to talk to about it or to get resources from and so I first went to YouTube and then once I got a TikTok because I refused to get a TikTok for like three years and then I got one and I was like oh people are on here like talking about school but it was all like the very aesthetic-y like my parents paid for my apartment you know here's my like real nice bag that I take to school and I'm Starbies every day before class blah 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 and I was like okay I don't think this is really what my life is gonna be like but now I feel like there's a huge variety of people on TikTok talking about law school. But like you said, there's like no other black men talking about it. There might be like three others, like Max. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I just saw Joshua, I think his name is Joshua, and he started making content. So I saw him. But outside of him, I can only name that's the only other black man that I really can think about that's making content regularly. I think I followed CJ early on. Yep. Um, 
who's already an attorney, but I think you were the first black man in law school making content about law school. And there are like a couple more now, but it was really just you there for a while. Yeah. Mm. Like a hot minute. Like, honestly, I think the only other two that I can think of that are law students are Joshua Gregory, mm-hmm. Ace Benji, yes, and then... I forgot about him, too. I follow him, too. Yeah. And then there's, like, a 1L who I think is posted, like, two videos, but they haven't really been, like, him talking about school, really. So I don't know if he'll start making more, but, yeah. I can only think of three other people. The yeah. way that your brain is the directory of Law Talk <laughs> is hysterical <laughs> to me. Well, something that I have really liked about your presence on TikTok and I think Instagram, you talk about it um, more frequently, but um, can you explain what your role in Balsa is? Yeah, 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 for sure. So uh, I'll I'll have to do the whole uh, trifurcated system breakdown. But <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Balsa or the Black Lawsuits Association, um, each law school across the country traditionally has and in five other countries and in Canada, Canada, Ghana, the United Kingdom, and another country I always forget, but they have uh, Black Law Student Association chapters. And so at the local level, I was previously the vice president for my local tech chapter, and now I currently serve on the regional board, which is the Southwest Regional Chair, which is basically comprised of our nation is comprised of six regions of the National Black Law Student Association. So there's the Southwest region, there's the Northeast region, the Mid-Atlantic region, the Southern region, the Western region, and the Northeast region. And so Nabosa was founded in 1968, and it uh, started as the National Black Law Student Association at Columbia University in New York. Um, the Northeast region is the founding region. And so basically what we do um, at the regional level is to kind of propel chapters and just the regions to make sure that they feel supported, make sure that when things happen um, in our regions, whether it be like some sort of police violence or some sort of you know, um, what we're seeing across Texas right now, all these DEI bills that are being uh, introduced to ban diversity, equity, and inclusion, or things that are just adverse to Black people and Black lawsuits in particular, we try to make sure they're supported and, and know that they have, you know, people who are fighting for them and ha- have access to higher powers so we can get some change and push some things through. Um, we additionally, we host like conferences, quote unquote, or, or conferences and conventions. So we have our regional convention, which is where we meet as a body, all the chapters and stuff like that. And we do panels and galas and all that stuff. You know, both love a gala. We are both <laughs> always having a gala. And so we do that. And then we do academic leadership retreat, which is like um, a chance for uh, local chapter boards to come and engage with each other, share ideas and just talk with each other and talk about experiences. And then we do like a pre-law symposium in every region which is just a chance for us to get all the law schools in our region. So my region holds 20 law schools. So this year we'll be in Austin and we'll just meet and have the opportunity to give people who want to go to law school the chance to hear from students at these schools presently, hear from admission officers at these schools. And it, I think it's, I think this is like probably my favorite event because it's a chance for you because, you know, you get, you get that filtered experience at like those preview days and stuff like that. But to hear from people who look like you about what your experience is going to be like at this school is invaluable. You know what I mean? And so I think that that is probably my, my favorite event, but we are all a part. We're all syndicates. Everybody, even if you've never heard of Nabosa or Swabosa, we're 
excuse me, all syndicates of the national organization. And the national organization has the same structure as the regional. So they, we have a national chair, national vice chair, and they have a huge convention every year. Um, this year was in Washington, D.C. in March. And I actually met another law talker there. Uh, I met Ronell there. And so yeah. we, um, I met, actually I met like three there because Hadea was there as well. We had met, we haven't met previously, but I saw her there. And then, um, um, legally, legally something. I can't think of her her at name. Rebecca is her her real name, but her at name is legally something. But um, I have to think about it later. But yeah, I met her there as well. But anyway, we host that national thing. We have national events all throughout the nation as well. But the national convention is the largest one. It's basically the same chance to do what we would do at the regional level. But you know, you have more people are there. It's a huge job fair there and a huge. Um, pre-law symposium there as well and as all type of panels and stuff like uh, the assistant attorney general Krista Clark was there this year a lot of congress people were there so it's just a great BOSA has been my saving grace in law school and the BOSA has been like a big big piece of my the most impactful experience I've had in law school thus far has come from Nabosa and Swabosa so I'm always excited to talk about them and, and just share knowledge. And it just brings a lot of joy to my heart, uh, all the work that we're doing and, they, and the people who have come before me have done for Black law students. Yeah, one of my mentors served on like this past year's Midwest board and she helped organize like the conference and stuff. And she was so stressed. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Oh man, I'm the chair. Don't even get me started. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I have so many emails to send when we get off this call. I just thought about that when I asked the question. <laughs> six emails when we get off this call today. But yeah, but it's gonna it's worth it though because like, man, my chair, the chair who was the chair for the board and I served as communications director last year. She was she's a wife. She's in law school. She took the she took the Fed bar right. Our convention yeah. is in January. She took Fed bar. Passed the Fed bar with a score high enough to practice in any jurisdiction in the UBE. Damn. Uh, she has three kids. Like this lady was working so hard. I'm like, yeah, if, if she did it, I cannot complain about anything. I can't <laughs> complain about nothing because she went hard and did all of that. And she had <laughs> she graduates in May. So I'm like, man. But wow. yeah, it's it's a lot of work though, but it's necessary work for sure. Yeah. So can you um you mentioned you were the chair. Can you explain what your role as the chair is in so, charge of? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the regional chair sits as the head of the region and as the representative on the National Board of Directors. So the National Board of Directors is made up of the national chair, the vice chair, the AG, the treasurer, and then each regional chair and six member at largest. And so we all vote and determine you know, where the convention will be, how funding goes and stuff like that. And so my role on the National Board of Directors is an advocate for my region, of course, to make sure that we have what we need as a region and make sure that our chapters are supported by the national organization and make sure that um, things are just going well in that way. And then as a regional chair at the regional level, I just sit as the chief financial office, the chief uh, executive officer, and, you know, the chest, you have to do everything. <laughs> I have to uh, facilitate the planning of, you know, all our capstone events and make sure that my my presence and my my participation is is felt at in every state. We have five states now. We added New Mexico this year, which is only one new law school, which is not that bad, but it's still an extra territory. 
Um, and so make sure that Black law students there know that what SWAPOSA is, because a, a big part of it is educating people about the actual organization. A, a lot of folks know about BOSA. A lot of folks don't know about the upper levels. Also learned that a lot of people don't call BOSA BOSA. They call it BLSA because it doesn't. Who, who does that? I've only know. heard BOSA. <laughs> the people out here at tech, whenever we say BOSA, they're like, what is it? That's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not spelled like that. I'm like, well, that's what we but say. But it is. <laughs> that's what it is. But and a big part of it. We do like all of the, I mean, it's like Hilsa, Ulsa, Bolsa. Mm-hmm. We don't yeah. call any of them like by their letters. Oh, no. mm. I hear it take they spell it all out. BLSA, APLSA, a- HLSA. They, that's what that they takes spell. so much longer to say though. Like, no, no, and no, it's done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree. It makes sense to me. They, that's what they said. <laughs> I was like, I like that. I'm calling it Bolsa. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so the regional chair part, I guess, at the regional level is, is a bit more work because you know you're the point person for everything, and people look to you as the head of your organ, the head of the regional board. And so it's more about being involved with with the region and making sure that they really know who we are, what we do, and how we can support them. So that's it's a it's a big educational piece to it. The schools who know who we are, they they have expectations and they expect us to do things. They're like, hey, we know what y'all do. We don't need the education. Y'all need to be getting some work done. And so with those schools, it's more about making sure uh, we're engaged, we're present, we're showing up, and um and just doing the work in that piece. So. It's a lot that goes into it, um, and um, I guess I got—I'll I'll explain how I got roped into it as well. So, <laughs> my fraternity brother uh, was the vice chair on the last board, and he's at—he's graduating this this uh, this May at UNT Dallas College of Law. He's a, a older older member of my fraternity, and he—I shouldn't say older twice. That was that was rude, but <laughs> older than you. Um, and he was, he had posted about it, I think on his Instagram page once. And I was like, Hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't heard about it before. And so I, I went and did research on it. I looked up Nabosa, looked up Swabosa and I was like, okay, I can be a part of this. And so I joined, not only was really getting myself into, and they, they worked me to death for that first year. So they worked me to death, but it was, it was, I can't, like I said earlier, um, I had a really hard time when I first came out here to Lubbock, like finding community because it's just so different than where I went uh, to school after undergrad. I went to an HBCU, like I said, and this town is incredibly white. <laughs> it is unbelievably white sometimes. Um, Lubbock, it's like, uh, you know, believe it or not, they say there's 10,000 Black students on this campus, but I have a hard time finding them. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say. That's what they this this school. I think let me look it. Let me look it up to be. How think, many people are at the school? I think it's like sixty thousand. Well, that's a big Okay, I'm sorry. It's thirty six thousand. I don't know where I got sixty thousand from. That's still a lot. Big. That's okay. still a lot for me. The TTU website that was Google. The TTU website says there's forty thousand six hundred and sixty six students enrolled at this school. So of that. I'm going to reduce that 10,000 number down. It's probably like 6,000 Black students out here. Um, Does that include all of the grad schools? Yeah, I would think so. And so, but and, and then too, in the law school, there's only, well, my first year, there was uh, 40 Black law students. This year, that's like 25. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a big drop. And, so, and my class was the largest 
class of black law students I think the school has ever had, and there was 11 of us <laughs> until the next class came in. The class that just came in there was 12, but three of the people that came in with us aren't in, they're not in law school anymore. And then they lost one transferred out um, mid mid one L year, which was crazy. <laughs> she, literally, she left in the middle of the year and just, just went to go get a, a whole other degree. Um, and then, but yeah, but how I get involved with Sposa. So um, I just had such a hard time building community out here the first year and Swabosa was like a, a pivotal point of community relation, even from just like the jump we got on the meetings and just was talking virtually at first, that was like, it was a community feel. And then to get in person, we had our first like large programming event, our academic leadership retreat. It was like the family I had been looking for in law school, you know what I mean? It was like, to be able to uh, really just fellowship with people who who understand the struggle in a way that is very similar to the way that I experienced law school, even though it's at a different location, a different, like completely different schools, completely different states and stuff like that. But the struggle is still the same. You know what I mean? And so it was like, I felt like I just had like a big, like, like a wusa, you know what I mean? Once I got around them and it was like, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I know that this stuff that I see in law school and I hear all the time is crazy as hell. It's 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 them, not me. You know what I mean? And so it's like, you know, it just it validated a lot of the experiences I was having in law school. And um it actually has led to me having more community out here in Lowick because I've got some other folks from the school to join the national board or the regional board with me. And now we're close because like we we're traveling all the time together to go to these conferences or we're talking about Nabosa or Swobosa all the time. So it has been, like I said, the most uh, impactful experience that I've had in law school um, too. And I'll add one more thing. I know I've been super long-winded, I'm sorry. But um, I think too, I, I want to be very intentional because of the privilege I have about you know the way in which like my job is guaranteed and my internship is guaranteed. I wanted to be very intentional about the way in which I spent my time in law school. I didn't want to really contribute to things that um, didn't bring me value personally. Like, I think if I would have been doing some, like we have, uh, I don't want to say this. Yeah, I have, we have um, experiential and experimental experiences here, but I just don't feel like all of them contribute to my experience in a way that would be beneficial to like how I want to practice law. And so when I thought about that, it was like, if I want to, if I say that I've committed to, you know, social justice for black people in the Southern United States, what can I be doing presently that looks like, you know, that type of work. And for me, that's Wabosa. You know what I mean? That's, that's the best use of my time you know, in law school. So. That's interesting that you bring that up because I kind of felt very similarly because when I got to school, I was like, okay, I know that I don't have to worry about money as much and I for sure have a job the first summer. And I think that's helped me and hurt me in a way, but it's helped because I've had such like a different perspective on school and like what I choose to get involved in. And even before I really knew like all of the things that school offered, like law review and mock trial and moot court and all that kind of stuff I like knew that I was never doing a journal I was like I'm not doing law review I do not care about this it seems like a scam 
And then when it was like all rolling around to like either apply or like do your tryouts or like do the pack and stuff, I got asked so much about it. And I was like, I have no interest in this. Like, this is not what I want to do. And I don't feel like it's something that I have to do to like make my resume look better or like focus on like what employers are like looking for in that way. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting juggle to like be involved, do what you want to do also like keep that in the back of your mind and they push it on you so hard oh my god they push journals and law review on you so hard that I, i'm not gonna lie i pick up the i pick up the law review packet and they said it was a packet but it was a textbook so i threw it away on my way out the law school and i was like you know what <laughs> thanks no thanks y'all got it actually <laughs> so because they just like they shove it down your throat like if you want to be successful you have to do this and you have to and my school is um there, I guess I, I wouldn't even say my school. I think all law schools push big law, uh, whether they admit to it or not. Um, but my school in particular pushes big law in, in oil and gas because of where we are in West Texas. And it's, it's such a, you know, this is the market for it. But, you know, it's like, um, if that's not your path, then I don't think they shouldn't, they shouldn't force it so much. You know what I mean? And I think the idea that you can't be as, that you won't be as successful of a lawyer if you don't do those things is just like, that's just not true. It's just yeah. not. So. I just feel like the messaging is really skewed because I think a better way of saying something like that or a more authentic way of saying something like that is to tell people to like find their thing like find your one thing in law school that you just like love that's what you pour your heart into etc and that could be law review that could be mock trial that could be moot court but those aren't the only options and Brandon and I talk about this all the time because we're both pro bono girlies like that's what I spend my time doing like mostly like that's my involvement thing like yeah I sit on like some boards and stuff and I do other things but like pro bono is like that's really what I do and I think there should be like more emphasis on the fact that there are so many options that you are able to dedicate like as much or if not more time to as law review as moot court as mock trial yeah sure I mean coming at it from the different angle of I came in with no guaranteed employment at all and I was like terrified of not getting a job I like (laughs) after we got our grades back from fall semester I'm not gonna say the GPA that I had but I should have not been concerned I should there's there is no part of me that should have been concerned but I was still concerned that I wouldn't like get an internship So I like gave into all of the pressure. Like I did everything I was supposed to do. Um, And now as a senior, I'm like, not only have I been on the pro bono board for two years, um, but I did journal during 2L and I'm on the board of journal. And I'm also a Dean's fellow. And I'm also the ABA representative. And I just like, there's a lot of options for what to do. Um, Don't be like me and do everything. I'm a very busy gal. <laughs> it's easy to get overcommitted in law school, though. It's mm-hmm. very easy to do that. Yeah. It, it, it just throws me off because it's a year shorter. Like, undergrad, you have, like, a little bit more time to, like, not do something or, like, do, like, a low-stakes position on a board and then, like, move up, like, a couple years later. Law school's so fast. It's, like, you get on a board 2L. Like, yeah. you must. Like, that's the way. Or, like, you are a 1L rep. And then you get on the board too well, or like, that's how you get like the president positions. Like there's this 
whole like lineup and it's so strange to me and I think I'm actually going to be like way more involved with Rio which is like not the norm but that's just how it's going to work out for me because yeah it's too late now <laughs> I was 1L rep for Bolsa and then I was vice president of this shit I didn't even think about it till you said that but it is fast you really get elected for those positions like your spring 1L I was elected vice president of Bolsa like I've been here for Six months, and y'all trust me to run the organization? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, what is movement learning? Because we've talked about some of the things that you're interested in doing and like how it intersects with civil rights. So what is what is movement learning? Yeah, I think the approach I take to it and my understanding of it is that movement lawyering is kind of when you focus what community activists and people who are actually engaged in in these communities that are being affected by like um laws and i think i guess more specifically tying it to experience what pji did and what cjp will be doing in miami this summer they listened and they have like they hold meetings with organizers they listen to what people have to say and they let that guide their litigation strategy instead of necessarily being the point where it's kind of like the traditional structure of like civil rights work where it's like impact litigation so they're like stacking cases on cases on cases and trying to find scaffolding through all these grievances and trying to find things to build up to get to the Supreme Court to effectuate some type of big national change where it's like we're guiding our litigation strategy based on, you know, how is this community disproportionately affected by this, whatever's happening here, and how will this change it? How will this you know, this case or this set of cases change it for this one particularly affected community? And so I think movement lawyering is is the way for me, you know what I mean? I think I have critiques of both impact lawyering and I mean, impact litigation and movement lawyering, but I think that of the approaches now, I think it is the most um, like persuasive, I guess, as far as getting change on a, on a real level, in my opinion. Yeah. And for listeners, I know that can feel, um, that explanation can feel really theoretical and the, it is, that's why. <laughs> that's why it feels like that. I think the best and like most well-known explanation of this is Brown v. Board. Um, that's typically the example given to explain movement lawyering because this was impact litigation um, that was done by the NAACP. And the, the flaw that people see in it is that while schools were desegregated. Um, there was a lot of issues with the actual process of desegregating, and uh, it had a lot of negative impacts for communities of color. And at the time, the Legal Defense Fund was going around asking community organizers what they could do. Most of the community organizers were like, we want better Black schools. Like, we don't necessarily want to pursue this avenue. And that is like, the difference there. Um, the Legal Defense Fund had an idea of what they wanted and found plaintiffs to do Brown v. Board rather than working with community organizers who had a different view of achieving equality. For sure. And I think too, in fact, we were talking a little bit about Brown. I think the... <laughs> I won't necessarily blame the the, the attorneys, but the all deliberate speed, uh, all deliberate free phrase gives me nightmare. Oh, yeah. The, <laughs> what does that mean? And, and in Texas, it meant 1993 in some in some cities. So in you know, and schools today are more segregated than they were in Brown's time. So yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not blaming Thurgood. He, uh, <laughs> did what he had to do. I'm a, I'm a big Thurgood Marshall fan. Um, I, <laughs> I always say he's the only, maybe not because Kanji Brown Jackson now, but he's the only Supreme court justice that ever lived a real life. Um, because the rest of them were just like put on this track to be a Supreme court justice at the age of like 14 years old. But yeah, yeah, that the the language and the the way that it was carried out was not fantastic by the courts. <laughs> and uh, don't know if this has happened in other states, but in I want to say 1998 in North Carolina, the Supreme Court was like, "We did it! We did it! We're we're fully integrated." Um, so now we can just implement a bunch of policies to bring segregation back. So like school choice policies are famously just because white families wanted to take their students out of majority uh, black schools. And huge issue here. Um, if you're in North Carolina, read the Leandro case and also impacts a lot of high school basketball, which is the topic I care most about in the entire world. <laughs> choices is, is probably going to be it's it's a big legislative thing right now. Legislative, se legislative session in texas and you know they're trying to wrap it up as something other than segregation but we all know what school choice is oh, <laughs> and charter schools it's like yeah. Gone. yeah the sweet charter school money they got they got some democrats in their pockets out here though so they they're the charter schools is big business in texas but the school choice thing i think will be the only thing that's been keeping school choice like not from being law here is that rural texas is is, is as urban as it is it's very rural still as well and i think rural uh, communities know that it will hurt them a lot more than it'll help and so i think that will help help their interests, I should say. Uh, so I think that a lot of them are are pushing back on it. The rural Republicans are pushing back on it, but I don't know how much longer they're going to hold out. So hopefully they can they can keep fighting it. But yeah, I think that was that was a great uh, further explanation of, of movement lawyering that you kind of gave there. And I think too, um, I'll just add that I think there are a lot of organizations now, especially I, I see in the South, those who aren't tied to like some of the I'm not going to name any names, but if you know, like the premier quote unquote organizations in civil rights work, they still kind of follow the impact strategy, impact litigation strategy model. But those organizations that are like state founded, like PJI, like CJP, people who are really focusing on the state level of advocacy, they take a real, uh, a centered approach at, I think, I think there's just something so special about hearing what a community has to say and, and, and really dealing with the law that way, because all of these things, nothing really matters if the people that you represent or those families who who are concerned about, you know, their family member that's in jail or how this case is going to turn out. If they don't feel like your work is impacting them directly, and if it's like I'm just a, a prong for some greater goal, then you're not really accomplishing much, in my opinion. And so I think that movement lawyer, I'm I'm glad to see that it's kind of picking up steam, especially across the South, because we have so many issues that are going to be prevalent over the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, where we're going to need people who are actively invested and who are, are active a part of these communities. And I think that's what, well, I know that's what Marshall Molly is pretty much, is rooted in, is rooted in the fact that we, they want us to be members of these communities who fight for these people and who really stand up for these people and not just some transplanted lawyer from you know, California or from New York or sorry to those people. I love y'all, but who's not who's not coming in no, no shade, no tea, who's not coming into these communities and, and representing 
people without actually being a part of, because it's different when it's your community. It's different when you live in this city and you know how people are impacted. And additionally, I think as a black American, it's hard to separate the identities. Even though you're, you're a lawyer, you're still going to be in some way affected by however this community is being affected, you know, in the same way, because this is, this is my home type deal. So I think it, it is, a, it is a special type of work that is like Afghanistan. And I think it's, it's great work. So yeah, sorry for the long way to answer. <laughs> no, I think that's an important point though about like the larger organizations and also just like administrative level stuff. And I think something that I realized very quickly in undergrad is like the admin will always pose as your allies, but at the end of the day, like their interest lies with the school. And I think the same could be said about businesses, obviously. Same could be said about these larger organizations. Like at the end of the day, those people who are above you are always going to admin and they're always going to be loyal to the business, the organization, the school, the whatever. And so I think that's a really important distinction between those larger groups and then those community level groups, because there they're only reaches a certain level of like who's at the top and who people are answering to. And it's just completely different in a larger organization that has a lot of layers of who's on top, who's, you know, answering to who, like, what's their big cause versus like, what is this big cause here? Yeah. I also like, um, I've seen across a few states, this um, trend of legal aid organizations and movement lawyering organizations kind of find loopholes around these really stringent state level and federal level requirements for funding. So that's what a lot of the restrictions on these types of organizations are, it's that they'll lose funding at the state level or federal level. And North Carolina's like big movement lawyering organization um, just made the decision to split into two different legal entities under the same, I guess, like parent company um, so that half of them could work on movement lawyering and like lobbying stuff that would lose the legal aid organization funding. And I just think like there's a trend right now where people are kind of not accepting the status quo of the preference for impact litigation and like these very um, limited legal aid organizations that we've seen in the past. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting because we talked about that in our episode about like policy and stuff and about how funding could be limited. And even like at my um, externship right now, because it is a legal aid um, association, like even when they're asked for their expertise, when they're sending those letters back to whoever's asking, like they have to include, like, we are not trying to lobby. We're not trying to advise you. Like, here's what we know. Here's what we think is like the best changes in these areas that you're inquiring about. Like they have to be so explicit in those written communications because they don't want to get screwed over and lose their funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of flaws with how this kind of work is done and movement layering is trying to fix them. And when you're talking about, I hadn't even thought about the fact that it, it just made me think about a PJI in the, in the sense that, because now that you say it, they, PJI started as a cap, which is Louisiana's state funded, um, I don't know what it means, but it's like they're, they're attorneys for people who are in the appellate process for the criminal part. 
And so oh, yeah. PGI is a civil part of it. But I think it they have to get their funding from like somewhere else, is my understanding, if I remember correctly. But I didn't even think about that until you brought it up that there's two separate organizations that kind of exist under like the same wing, but because they are doing like different types of work, they have to get other funding. You know what I mean? So yeah. yeah. It's it's very complex and it wasn't always. Um, one of my professors was a legal aid. Uh, director, I believe, um, before all of these kind of regulations with funding went into place. And uh, it's back when being a legal aid lawyer was actually like a radical thing to do, which I think we should, should bring that back. Okay. Uh, I think our final question is, do you have any advice that you would give somebody who's interested in movement lawyering or civil rights or just like what final wisdom would you like to bestow? I would just say what I tell people all the time, um, people who ask me about Marsha Molly and about like why I want to do this. And you have to know like the reason, like you have to know the the why, because like we've been talking about this episode, law school is hard. <laughs> like I talk about on TikTok all the time. Law school is hard. Life is hard. And things will get in the way and, and cloud that judgment. But you have to like, one, you have to show that you've done the work already, too, because I think it's hard to like, it's kind of, it's one of those things that you, if you, if you're going to get into it, you have to have like that commitment already there, you know what I mean, type deal, like nobody's going to sell you on civil rights, nobody's going to, people going to sell you on big law, people going to sell you on all other types of area of law, but nobody's going to sell you on this, like you have to want to do this work, you know what I mean, just because you want to do it. And so I think that a lot of times people will will think that it has like this gloss and this glaze that other areas of law have and, and it doesn't, you know what I mean? It's dirty. You work the same hours as everybody else, but you get paid maybe a quarter as, as much, you know what I mean? And so I think that you have to be very real about that and the expectation, like you're not gonna be rolling the dough, but you're gonna be working just as hard as the lawyers who roll in the dough, you know what I mean? And so I think that you have to really like hone that in and for any, I think too, I want to say like for black people, I know there's always that that there's an internal battle for black, I think for black law students, black people who are in touch with their conscience and who, you know, all of that jazz, but it's like, you feel like you have to do it. You know what I mean? I think that if you feel like if you're making the decision because you're compelled like to I have to be this voice or this advocate for black people, then maybe you should check what that's about first before like is there something personal tied to that or is this just because you're doing it because you feel like it's the right thing to do for the black community because i think a lot of times people can get involved in this work trying to chase that i want to be the next thurgood marshall or johnny cochran without any real substance to it and so if you're just doing it because you feel like it's the right thing to do maybe check that first and see if there's a personal tie to it and if not it's okay to pursue other areas of law you know what i mean but if it's something that is in you and you're passionate about it and you have your why, hold on to it. Because if there are going to be dark days and there are going to be chances and opportunities that will shake you from it and try to get you away from it. But if you have that like that core thing that you know, like this is why I want to do this work. This is why I've chosen to give my life to it. I've given all this time to it already and I'm ready to pursue more time in it. It'll keep you grounded because um, the stuff we see from the news and from... <laughs> That's like what's coming out of these legislatures will make you want to quit. But you know, I, I remember Sherilyn Ifill and Maya Wiley, who are two women who lead, who have done amazing work in civil rights. They they both said pretty much the same thing. 
You know what I mean? These times have happened in our country before. You know what I mean? Like if if the civil rights lawyers of the 1920s and the 1930s would have quit their work, then who's to say that Thurgood Marshall would have accomplished board in the 60s? I mean, Brown versus board in the 60s. You know what I mean? If people would have stopped doing the work before you or people would have quit doing the work before you, if you quit doing the work, then there's no guarantee that those of us um, behind us will have the opportunity to see, you know, trees planted from seeds that we may, may never see grow. So I think that you just have to kind of keep your head down sometimes and keep doing the work, even though you may not like see that that sunlight or that light, light, light at the end of the tunnel, but you know that something's going to come good of it. You know what I mean? The work is not in vain. So that's my parting wisdom <laughs> for people who want to get into this movement, lawyer and slash civil rights work. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad we can uh, give a little bit of a platform to the program that you're involved in that will pay for schools and actually make that a lot more realistic of a, of an option for people. So shout out to that. Absolutely. I would say too, they we're in the process, they're in the process of selecting a third cohort. I don't know where they're at with it, but the next cohort, like if you're going to try to go to law school next fall, like if you want to start uh fall 20, 23, 24, you can apply in like this fall, this coming fall. So you can be a part of the fourth cohort. So it's NAACP LDF Marshall Molly Scholarship Program. So there's a lot more information you can read about on there. I'm not going into the full jazz of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mouthful to talk about. You don't have can... the brochure memorized. <laughs> All I can say, what I have memorized is this. There's, it's a 13-year commitment to practicing civil rights work in the southern United States. And the South is is basically the old Confederacy on the LDF map. So <laughs> it's it's not the traditional, well, how would you describe the South? <laughs> but it's the old Confederacy, <laughs> Whatever your geographical understanding is. Right. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'll I'll make sure to link that in the uh, description for people who are interested in it. And yeah, I think that's all for this week's episode of The In-Laws. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at The In-Laws Pod. We post these full-length episodes every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. So make sure to follow and rate the podcast or whichever streaming service you're listening on. And make sure to follow Madrian on TikTok at Madrian Low underscore. I'll also put his handles in the bio. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.